something about Sam's videos, his Loom videos that made an impression on me was like, he was literally like breathing heavily while doing email. It was so focused. And I realized this is not like an afterthought. This is like, get in the zone as if I'm doing any other task, super, super focused, like a sport. And when I kind of changed my framework around that, I think it was really helpful. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the growing team here at Levels. We're a venture funded startup backed by more than a thousand of our community members and some of the best VCs in the game, including Andreessen Horowitz. On this podcast, we talk about everything we do. We share the learnings about our culture and what we're building along the way. This is Inside the Company. Inbox Zero. It's either something you get behind or you don't. Either you're the type of person who can look at their phone and see 29,337 unread messages and be okay with it, or you can't. There's not really an in-between. And the idea of processing and triaging information, really the foundation of communication, well, there are all these things that can be really hard to get behind. Everyone's going to have a different way of going about their tasks, and that's fine. The important thing is, do you get to an end goal that works? And is it the most effective way for you to manage what you do? And so Sam Korkos, CEO and co-founder of Levels, Casey Means, Chief Medical Officer and co-founder of Levels, and I, well, the three of us sat down and discussed all these different principles of communication. The way that we think about email, specifically Inbox Zero, the way that we've managed our comms, our internal communications, and the way that we can take these insights to help each other to keep learning and really getting better as we communicate more as a team. The conversation reinforced that communication really is the foundation of any great relationship, whether personal or professional. And so here's where we started. Okay. In box zero, this is, this is a sensitive topic. It's a fun topic. It's something that I think we've probably discussed as a team more times than you can count on two hands. But I think between the three of us, we all have such different ways of managing communications and tasks to be effective in the way that we prioritize things. And so there's a lot of lessons learned. Um, just in, in, I guess, the outlook on Inbox Zero and then how we've all come to this point that we manage it and even like the way we manage it today. So I know Sam, like Sam is a huge proponent of Inbox Zero and he's been really helpful in getting our team ramped up around that. And so like Sam, how did you start to think about Inbox Zero and when you did it, did you ever revert back to these old habits or old ways of doing email? Yeah, I was, I started doing Inbox Zero. Gmail came out with a product called Inbox, um, which they eventually killed. I'm not entirely sure why. I guess it didn't get enough traction. But it was basically superhuman before superhuman. It was the first real Inbox Zero tool. Um, the biggest thing that I noticed for myself was the anxiety reduction that came with it. This is one of the things we talked about in the Effective Communication podcast is how um, the the stack of ambiguous tasks was something that caused a lot of a lot of anxiety for me and not knowing how much work I needed to get done if I was dropping balls. Um, the the thing that I'm I'm especially curious about because uh, I know Casey and I have talked a lot about this topic of time management and communications and inbox zero in particular. And I've, I, I've noticed a, I've noticed a, a significant uh, jump in communication and um, what I perceive to be a reduction in stress uh, from Casey's side of, uh, of things. I, I'm curious to, to hear if, uh, if there are any big learnings. I mean, absolutely no question. I would say my anxiety level around communication has gone down quite a bit um, since I really adopted finally inbox zero. Um, and I think that it was um, 
it really is what you what you talked about, which is that as opposed to this just like looming gray cloud of ambiguous tasks that a lot of which live in your inbox, sort of in the body of these emails, um, just sort of like waiting for that, you know, magical time, that optimistic time when you you think you're going to get to it, you know, it's really it's, it's all gone. It's all scheduled, you know, into your calendar and you can actually clear the inbox and know that everything's been accounted for. So it's been a major change. And yeah, I think I've been able to actually be a lot faster with communication without that gray cloud of a huge inbox hanging on top of me. So, um, yeah, certainly happy to dive into kind of what the system was before we got to inbox zero and sort of the progress, the progression towards actually getting there. Um, if you want us to, if you want to get into some detail on that, Ben, I'm happy to, happy to elaborate. Yeah. Like I think that that would be going into some of the backstories really interesting. I've always been curious because you came from a world where I'm going to make an assumption that communication in the medical field is very different than a air quotes, fast paced startup, especially one that is remote and relies on communication, right? It's probably more volume than would take place in the medical world. So like, what, what was that like coming into this environment? And then what was this, what was the sense of reluctance to fully adopt inbox zero? Yeah, it was interesting in the medical world. Email wasn't really a big part of my life. I, there would actually be days that would go by where I wouldn't check my work email because so much of what was sort of dictating my schedule in my life was actually the electronic health record and the communication with patients on there. So in a sense, that was kind of my inbox. Um, you know, and with that, kind of similarly to the business world, there are a lot of physicians out there with dozens or hundreds of chart notes or patient communications that are just have not been completed yet and feel a huge burden and weight on their shoulders about this. And actually, the leading... I believe the leading factor involved in what is like rampant physician burnout is like essentially electronic communications um, and and working with the electronic health record. So it's kind of no different in a lot of ways from the business world where I feel like this is a really root cause stressor for a lot of people um, sort of figuring out how to manage their inbox. Um, but when I came to Levels, um, you know, at first it was just the five of us, the co-founders. Um, and so there wasn't quite as much you know, email. And then as responsibilities and um, sort of areas that I was working on expanded, and as we started working with more external partners, um, and as I started really managing content, which had a lot of external partners with freelance writers and editors and things like that, definitely email started ramping up quite a bit after the first few months. And so what I kind of defaulted to was sort of my, what I would consider like my high school, college um, and med school kind of way of managing tasks, which was the to-do list, which um, I love the way Sam talks about to-do lists. Like it's this really overly optimistic way of thinking that you're going to kind of get everything done, but really it's just creates this just amorphous list of tasks, you know, that, um, that aren't really prioritized. So I remember and I was looking back at some of the things I was initially using for my to-do list. And I basically had a Google doc called Casey's priorities that I would update every week. So I used it for over a year at levels. And before my one-on-ones with Sam, I would generally update it so I could get a sense of like what was on my plate. And it was usually about three typed pages for each week. And it's essentially was like bucketed into all the areas that I was working on. And then underneath those buckets, all the tasks that week that I had to do. And then I highlighted the ones that were top priority. And so you're looking at three typed pages. It's super overwhelming and kind of just like deciding, okay, at this moment, these are the ones that need to get done first. So it would be like, you know, for in October, it was like content, hiring, podcasts, advisory board management, research, PR media, conferences, um, and then other team needs, which was sort of like a catch-all. And then under each of those might be like three to 20 bullet points. And so this was really causing me a lot of anxiety. And I feel like most of the time I was talking to Sam on our one-on-ones, I'd be like, oh my gosh, Sam, there's so much on my plate. I'm not sure where to start. And he would really help me strategize. And you know, those documents in one sense were useful because they actually helped us really realize where we needed to hire. Um, and I think from those documents actually kind of directly led to us hiring 
um, people like Mike Haney to take over a lot of the editorial and content side, um, Tom um, to really take on a lot of the partnership stuff. And so they were useful for that, for understanding that, but they were not useful for task management. And basically when something would come in an email that needed to be done, I'd add it to that list. And then the email would sit in my inbox until at some point it got done. So that was a terrible system. It's almost embarrassing like mentioning it, but I'm saying it in full transparency because you've got to start somewhere. And I think that sometimes when you don't have good systems coming in, you can kind of just a year can go by where you're kind of doing things the wrong way. Um, and this looks totally different to, of course, how I'm doing things now. But that progression from that to now, which is inbox zero, really using calendaring um, to manage my tasks. Um, you know, it was definitely like a six to eight month process and a lot of conversations with Sam. Um, and I think that process we can go into it sort of in more detail, but from getting from there to now um, and the stress that's taken off from moving away from the to-do list um, to a to a system of using the calendar and the inbox as a way to triage tasks um, is just like, has been game-changing for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's wild because it, it seems really busy, right? Like everybody who has that much work on their plate, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm so busy. But it gets down to this root of things being unplanned work, right? Like if the majority of your time, 95% of your time is bogged down in unplanned work, and Sam has tons of thoughts on this because it, it pertains to company building, it pertains to eng, it pertains to like, name it, unplanned work can clog up the manufacturing system pretty quickly. And I think that's where the outlook on having a really efficient way of managing your time and being accountable for it is what makes things progress. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, I think one of the many, many ways in which Sam's an incredible leader is that he, you know, <laughs> like, you can go to him with some of these problems and and really... I see him as a coach in a lot, in, in, in a lot of this. Um, so it's pretty fascinating to sort of see how things progressed. Um, really the, the first shift, um, because Sam really, I think associates, um, email and task management, um, together. And I was not really viewing things that way, like how email could be directly feeding into how I structure my time. And now I see them as like very much one in the same, because most of the tasks many of the tasks where I'm going to have to devote time to comes in through um, email. So some of the big game changer things that happened was that Sam actually started sending me Loom videos of him processing his email and puts them into his calendar. And it was, I would say, completely revolutionary for me to watch him process email versus knowing how I do it. It was faster, it was more efficient. There were shortcuts. He was delegating. He was sending emails to other people. Um, to loop them in early. Um, he was closing the loop, even if he wasn't ready to complete the task, but at least telling people that he saw it and this was the time frame. He was setting realistic guidelines of when he would get back to them based on looking at his calendar. And all of that was mind-blowing to me. So um, those initial Loom videos, I'd say maybe, I don't know, you probably sent me five hours worth over the course of a few weeks. And those were like, felt like coaching and like watching game days, like from a sports team. And I, I loved it. Um, and then he asked me to send him Loom videos of me doing email. And he actually coached me through those. And um, basically at like multiple different timestamps said like, hey, Casey, like you could have definitely sent this email to XYZ and like had them do that. Like you, um, you know, write back to this email, tell them that you can't look at it like until, you know, your calendar opens up, like, and really giving me this like play by play how I could be doing it differently. And that was that was definitely one of the biggest steps forward in me gaining the skills to actually be a good email processor and figure out how to take things from the email, put them in my calendar, create that closed loop system and then get the email out of my out of my inbox. Yeah, we got to go down the path of this calendaring because it's something that Sam has done for a couple of years. Now there there's a, a nice first round piece about it. Um, it, it's very counterintuitive, or it was, I've adopted it now. It was very counterintuitive to the way that I worked. And that's back to this first statement of, hey, we all have different ways of processing information and doing it efficiently. I've always had a to-do list that I use on a notepad, but prioritize it where it's like super happy to just delete things off of it and and try to be efficient about 
like core deep work or core project work versus like unplanned and like now we're punting this. Um, but Sam doesn't use a to-do list. And so like my questions around this calendaring exercise and how, like, how did you pair that with this whole thought of inbox zero when, when taking it on? Yeah. It's really just about triaging information. Um, the goal of, of putting something on your calendar is to force yourself to be realistic within the constraints of what you can actually accomplish in a given day. I think one of the biggest conceits that I've seen in people in leadership in any company I've worked at is this, uh, this assumption that comms just sort of happens and very few people prioritize it or block off time to do it. And they just sort of try to fill in email in the margins between major tasks that they're doing. Um, when for most people in leadership, it really is their main job. Um, so making sure that you prioritize communication. Um, this is one of the things that Casey mentioned is that uh, I, I know that Ben and Casey have, you have different methodologies for uh, scheduling things. I, I do it more in the way that Casey does now, which is if, if somebody sends me an email and it asks me to do a thing, I will mark the email as complete but I will put it in my calendar. So I'll block off, say, an hour to do the thing that was in the email. Um, whereas, Ben, I know you use the email system itself uh, to set a reminder for yourself in the future. Um, I, I get a lot more clarity on what I have upcoming and what my bandwidth is through using calendars. But um, whichever system works uh, for, for each individual is fine. Um, so. I, I'm actually curious, Ben, because I know that you've been you've been experimenting with using your calendar more. Have there been any learnings from that process? Yeah. So, like, it, here's the biggest thing: is it was it was terrible at first, right? Because the, the optimal calendar for me was zero meetings. Like, let's assume a week, and this is not a perfect state, but like, no meetings at all. And every day has just like completely open chunks of time to do really deep focused work. And knowing that you can adapt that, you can be malleable when needed, if some unplanned work comes up that happens to actually be high prior priority, not something that seems like it's a high priority, but it actually is. Um, where it got really hard is when I was trying to do what you had suggested, where it's like an email comes in or some like some message comes in from somewhere and you block off time to address it in your calendar. And I was trying to do that, but where it was really difficult was I couldn't adapt to like, well, I have to punt this thing forward. It just wasn't working. So what's worked better is to open up the calendar so that it doesn't have these, um, blocked off chunks of time for certain things. It's knowing that I'm going to accomplish a number of core projects and fill in, like you've got your rocks and filling it in with the sand around it, which is the emails. But the biggest learning for the calendaring is like, I guess there are two of them. One of them is accountability. So it's time accountability to myself. Like if you're really diligent about it and you you keep track of everything down in like 15 minute increments. You can see, like see how you spent your time and you can go, am I spending my time in the best possible way for this team to be effective? The other side of it is optics. And so this is, I think the biggest benefit is being able to see each other's calendars and you can just look into mine and you can be like, oh, there, like, there isn't a ton of room to just throw eight hour projects, like just throw this randomly saying, Hey, we need this tomorrow. Even if it was urgent, sure. We'd make it happen, but you can sort of see where time is being spent. And I think that's been helpful for everybody to be able to like see the actual work being worked on. One more point is like back to this whole email thing and this, I don't know if you want to call it a weird system, but it just seems to be like what has worked is when an email comes in, it's not about processing it reactively, but I'll, I tend to like batch things. So it's like, I'll, I'll turn off platforms, communication platforms for hours at a time if I'm not processing. And then when I go to batch, like let's say I spend an hour and a half or two hours just doing comms, like just hammering through them. 
I'll process everything. And then even if the thing is processed, I'll set reminders for myself of like follow-ups to stay on top of things or follow-ups for closing the loop. Like somebody intros, um, somebody may, like somebody on our cap table makes an intro to somebody else. I'll set the reminder for like four weeks just to close the loop with that person to be like, hey, uh, wanted to let you know the conversation went really well. Here's what we talked about, one, two, and three. Like, appreciate it. That's the way that I use email as far as tooling goes so that my brain never has to think about ever doing any tasks. Like, I basically use it as, I use it so that I can like actually not be super smart, just like transactional about everything. And it makes things a lot easier. Yeah, I think the the biggest one is around the the ambiguity of the big stack of tasks. I think this is what Casey touched on. That's that's definitely something that I I feel as well. Um, right now we're using threads um, instead of Slack, and one of the challenges when you have a list of follow ups, you can't push those into a future date. Right now I have a list of I think thirty threads that require my input, but about half of them don't need my input for at least a week, and I it, it's definitely causing me some stress just knowing that there's a, there's a high probability I will drop a ball because I don't know, I don't have a way to triage that information. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page. Like there's, that gives me, that takes up brain space. Like when I see that, that gives me a sense of anxiety because it feels like not inbox zero. Whatever the opposite of inbox zero is, that's what it feels like. And I think I've got 29 right now, right before we hopped on this. And some of them are like, one of them is a thread that, you had sent me earlier today, Sam, and it was like, hey, let's let's revisit this in every quarter. So what I do in email is just set the reminder and it's gone away. Like I don't even need to think about it. It'll be zero. I'm at inbox zero. But instead, that thing's going to sit there in my purview for like ever in perpetuity until we address this thing, which could be multiple quarters. And it doesn't take very many of those to stack up where all of a sudden you're like, whoa, there are 50 of these things and you can't figure out which ones to prioritize because it's a block of things with no date associated to them. With threads, what I am doing, since it is basically a secondary inbox, is that when there's any task that I know is going to take me more than about 10 minutes, I will put it on the calendar, something I really need to do a deep review on. Um, but in that system, it will just sit on the inbox homepage until that's done, even if it's two weeks in the future. And there is something so different about that than the inbox zero feeling where it's just knowing that it's there and it's you can see it every day. It feels like that gray amorphous cloud again. Um, and so being able to get rid of it and have it come back only when you need it, I think is like a huge um, cognitive unload that I think, you know, would be really positive and something that's superhuman um, does a really great great job of. But um, yeah, I think one of the biggest um, breakthroughs that that Sam helped me with um, is, is adding the th like, being in a leadership position, knowing that email communication is going to actually be a significant part of my job can't just fit in around the edges, which I think is what we all try to do. Um, putting actually three hours of straight email processing on my calendar every single day. And now that I have that, and I know I've got that buffer time to do email, um, and considering email now to be a part of my job that I actually see as a, a real important task, um, it is so, so much easier. And so I'm doing the, like I just mentioned, if it's less than 10 or 15 minutes or so, I will just process whatever's in the email during that block during that hour block or one of those three hour blocks. And then if it seems like it's going to be more than that, like I'm actually having to edit a document or whatnot, review a you know, strategy document, it, it goes on the calendar. Um, and then I think like Ben does, I set the reminder for that email to come back the day that I'm going to be working on it um, around the time that I calendar it for. So, um, so yeah, I think that's just something that is a, a definite takeaway for me is like schedule the time um, on your calendar. So you're not overly optimistic about what you can do and, and let email kind of just, you know, um, be a second tier thing when it really, you know, is not. If it took, so you said it took like 18 months to like really grasp onto this and you would try and then revert back to old ways and try again. Like what was that catalyst for change where you're just like, 
okay, I'm done with this. Like I have to adopt this new way of communicating or processing information. It was several things. I think the first was, I think at a certain point, you just get sick of complaining about the same things. <laughs> and I think that's what was, I was like, I just do not want to have another one-on-one with Sam where I'm like, you know, complaining about the same thing. And Sam is so helpful. And the real catalyst was we'd been exchanging these Loom videos back and forth, which I feel like really helped me build my basic skills for like actually how to be a good email processor. And I started seeing email just as I would see a sport, like, you literally need specific skills to do it well. And, and we don't actually learn those as an American adult. Like you don't, you don't get trained on how to do it well. So in superhuman, that could be, you know, um, shortcuts, smart phrases, um, you know, setting up your desktop appropriately to be able to like move windows around in the most efficient way. Um, And so Sam was actually at my house for about a day and sat down with me for two or three hours and literally just watched me do email in person. And in about an hour, he completely transformed my desktop. So like totally changed my hotkeys and my hot corners and my set up multiple desktops instead of one desktop and had me put different programs in each desktop. So I wasn't like totally cluttering my one desktop, Um, you know, got the sidebar to disappear. So it wasn't in my space, like all these things that just made it much more of a focused place on my desktop. And then watched me do some email for a little while and gave me some of those pointers like we've been doing through Loom. Um, But something about doing it in person and kind of, I feel like almost seeing the cringing of some of the things I was doing and realizing like, yeah, I got to do better, um, was great. And so there were, and I think, you know, and, and, and what resulted from that time together in person, which was really what I consider to just be like some of the best coaching of my life. Um, I said, okay, I feel like I have the skills by Sunday at whatever, 9 p.m. I'm going to be at inbox zero. I'm going to send you a note at that time. Like I'm going to be held accountable for this. And I did. And so then I do think getting to inbox zero, no matter what it takes, even if it means sitting down with like someone in leadership on your, at your company, who's really good at it and getting like real help, um, getting to that inbox zero was such a monumental thing. Cause I had been living with like 500 emails in my inbox for like months and months and months. Um, and getting to that, um, and then starting fresh was transformational because then there was nothing, there was no burden, no overhead. And from then on everything that came in, I could apply the skills too. I could either calendar it. I knew how I wanted to be approaching emails that were incoming. And so that was from there, it actually, I have not reverted and it's been now a few months and I don't see it going back. Um, because you know, the foundation and the skills are there now. So I really do see it almost like a sport and something about Sam's videos, his loom videos that made an impression <laughs> on me was like, he was literally like breathing heavily while doing email. It was so focused. And I realized this is not like an afterthought. This is like, get in the zone as if I'm doing any other task and like super, super focused, um, like a sport. And when I kind of changed my framework around that, I think it was really helpful. Yeah. That's so funny, but it's so true though, because I mean, everything, as soon as you get in the process of doing it and you get like Raul always talks about this, Raul Vora, uh, co-founder of Superhuman, that he designed anecdotally, here's a little story he tells and he told it on the Acquired podcast. Shortly after Report of um, had been acquired by LinkedIn, he got himself a like little toy, which was a Lamborghini. I can't remember which model it was, but he used to drive it through the canyons and he said he would drive it a little faster than the speed limit. Not much, but just a little bit faster. And that would put him into this deep flow state. And so he he had this insight one day where he's like, I want to design an email product that puts me in a flow state that feels like I'm driving a Lamborghini through the canyons. And that's really what it feels like. As soon as you get processing email or um, any type of communication really efficiently, you get into a deep flow state where everything is hotkeys. It's snippets, it's reactions, and it's about how fast you can get through things while still being thoughtful. The other side of it is that just because you can do things quickly doesn't mean that you do. And I think this is where Sam's been Sam's been working with a number of people on the team to set expectations around communication, right? So it's like, 
we have we might have the ability to process things, but if we're not responding in n number of days, that might not be helping the rest of the team. So, like Sam, how how are you thinking about it when you're you're trying to break down remotely, right? Like you're trying to break down where to help people and like what is going to benefit the team the most as it pertains to processing versus communication expectations. Yeah, I think some of it is um, first it's whether people want me to help them. Um, Casey and I have talked about it a lot, and she wanted my input. Um, I think another is whether there are balls being dropped or not. So like, we can take your example, Ben, of the, the system that you have in place. Approximately zero people in the company mention that they're concerned about you dropping balls. So whatever system you have in place, it's definitely working. So uh, there are other places where uh, I get feedback that uh, communication is not where it needs to be, or there's some ambiguity around execution or timeline, um, and we just need to increase the cadence of communication. I think this is just especially important in remote teams like ours to have a, an unreasonably high cadence of communication, uh, much more than people are used to in jobs that they come from before. Uh, Josh talked about this in a previous podcast where um, his, his lack of communication was causing a lot of tension uh, earlier on in our relationship uh, as co-founders. And he had this recognition that, well, how, how could Sam know what I'm doing? Because I'm, uh, I'm on the other side of the country. So there's no looking over the shoulder. There's no casual conversations. It's just somebody is completely off grid and then they come out of the cave. And uh, so I think that the biggest principle is that if you're in leadership, communication is probably your number one priority over all other things. Uh, it's unblocking others. It's uh, making sure that people have the things that they need in order to get work done. Because if you're in leadership, you are probably the blocker for a lot of things. Yeah, the tough thing with it too is... And there's no right answer to this. It's just being respectful of everybody's outlook. So objectively, yes, I agree. If you're in a leadership position, your job is to communicate, to unblock, to get things done and to move things forward. The challenge is that you could send, hypothetically, so let's use you and I as an example. You could send me 250 we'll just call them emails, even though we use threads, but 250 messages tomorrow. And let's assume they're relatively transactional. I wouldn't even think about it. It would just be like processing. Like it would just, you just do it. But to somebody else, they might think like, oh my goodness, I'm so overwhelmed that they go into shutdown mode and then they don't know which one to start with. So it's like knowing that everybody's got a different preference for email. And I think when we decided to switch to threads, like Sam and I had our hand in the air, we're like, we love email. Like just, I don't know, it's a weird thing, I guess, but we just both really enjoy, like it's an enjoyable thing to do. This sounds totally maniacal right now. We were now, definitely outliers on the team. <laughs> but it's, it's funny because other people like Ms. was notorious for saying like, I have a lot of gripes with email and that's completely fine. Josh, same thing. He's not a huge fan of email. Um, but I think it's because of everyone's way of processing it is going to be totally different. And so when you bring on, when more people are hyper communicators, it's really good, but you also need the right tooling to be able to manage that communication, right? So it's like, if you have, when it's only Sam putting out, we'll see, he's pushing out like 30 emails a day to the team. And then there's different response times from, from everyone else. Well, if you have like three Sams or three people with a high communication cadence coming in and they're all pushing out 30 emails, that that's where we started to see things break is like, oh my goodness, there's a very high communication cadence. A lot of information needs to be processed. What are we going to do about it? Knowing that email is not the right platform for the way that we needed to communicate as a remote team. So it's interesting to see how that happens from a tooling perspective. But if we get back into expectations for communications, like what are, and, and I'm genuinely curious because I don't know, I don't know if 
the outlook on follow-up and the outlook on reasonable amount of time to respond is going to differ here. So like Sam, I'm curious, like what do you think is a reasonable amount of time to give someone to respond to an email? Yeah, I think it depends on the person and the role. Um, I think 24 hours is probably reasonable. And I think one of the things that's often underappreciated, and I think this is something that Casey and I talked about is um, it's okay to give someone a response. And that response is, I'm not going to be able to answer this for five more days. Um, it's really just the the goal is not to avoid failure. It's to avoid silent failures where um, that communication gap causes a lot of stress for the other party. So if Ben asks me for something, if I just respond with, I don't have time to look at this until Thursday, is that okay? Um, the answer is usually yes. But if I just don't respond and I wait until Thursday, Ben doesn't know if I even got the message or if I'm avoiding it for some reason. There's just there's too much ambiguity. And so knowing the, the metaphor that I, th I think of in my head is it's important to know who has the ball on any given task. Um, ben, you're particularly good at uh, taking the ball and then deciding that we don't want to do anything further with it. So um there were a lot of open tasks where uh, we've decided that we would we would think about it and then you would be responsible for it. And then you start looking into it and you say, I think we should not do this. And then we don't. And that's great, as opposed to it just sort of silently going away without any real sense of resolution. But I, I'm actually I'm curious about one thing from to, to hear from Casey on um one of the things that I've always struggled with, and I know this is something that's taking up a lot of your time right now, since you're really the point person on all of the press that we're doing. When I was going through my calendar and my emails and all of the tasks on my list with Ms., um, we had the recognition that I have maybe one or two unscheduled events per week. Uh, it's, it's really very few. We went through 100 communications. Uh, via email and threads. I think it was actually just email in this case, but uh, all 100 of them were asynchronous and none of them were time sensitive. So um, that was uh, an interesting observation. And in your particular case, a lot of what you're doing right now is very much time sensitive. Uh, it's a reporter wants to talk to somebody now or tomorrow. Uh, and it's, it's harder to schedule around that. How have you, how have you managed that? Because I, that's something I've always struggled with myself, and my solution is just to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the first things um, is being a little bit more comfortable saying no to things. Um, so it used to be sort of in the beginning of the company that anything press related that came in, we'd kind of drop everything and and do it. And now we're being a little bit more selective about opportunities. Um, and I now, you know, we've we've hired, um, you know, Mike Haney, our editorial director, who's now really the point person day to day for sort of like the first pass on press stuff. And so to have that help um, with another person who can help fill in for things that are semi urgent is like a huge, you know, huge help. And a lot of times, you know, him and I will go back and forth about like, you know, can you do a first draft for this type of thing for these answers, and I'll do a quick review or vice versa. Um, so having that tag team is really helpful. But I think from a calendar perspective, um, you really taught me this lesson, which is that sometimes if I've got a day that's full of blocks, you know, I can potentially move a task that's non urgent to a subsequent day, or even maybe next week, if it's really not time sensitive, but does have to be done. And then I can write that person who whoever else is a stakeholder in that task or project a note saying like, hey, you know, something came up, would it be okay with you if if I got this to you on Tuesday? Um, and a lot of the times, that's not a problem. Um, you know, if it is a problem, then have to reevaluate. Um, so, you know, and then of course, sometimes things just kind of end up adding blocks, you know, maybe cutting into email time or whatever to get some of this time sensitive stuff done. Um, but but those are kind of the main, main ways that we we triage this stuff. So having having help and support, um, moving blocks around and just making sure to close the loop on that. Um, 
and um, and learning to say say no more to some of these um, things that are not necessarily going to be great, um, you know, leverage for the business or, or necessarily super critical or existential for us right now. Yeah, I think the 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 comment around being able to inform stakeholders around deadlines is is I think a really important one because the this is especially important for remote teams is the people need to know that everyone on the leadership team is reliable. And if the, if the, let's say the deadline is Friday and you get a really important press interview that comes up and you bump it to Tuesday, if you don't have any way of telling the person to expect it later, they might be blocked by that thing. Um, and they might need to change something in their calendar. And if all they hear is, oh, Casey just didn't do the thing, and I don't have any visibility as to why, um, it, it decreases people's confidence in execution and in reliability. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the closing the loop is the the key thing. And I think in a remote asynchronous company, it's like closing the loop is, is everything. Um, even if the closing the loop is saying that you can't do it right now. I think that can sometimes be the hardest part for people. And I'm just maybe I'm actually, I'll just speak for myself. I think that was a hard part for me early on, which is that a lot of the time closing the loop means that you're saying, I can't get to this right now, or I need to push back this deadline. Does that work for you? And I think for people who are in the sort of people pleaser category, um, that can be really, really hard. Um, and so I think that's just something that we've all got to get more comfortable with, like really realizing and buying into the fact that it's always better to know what's going on and have a clear answer, even if that answer is no, versus just having something linger. It's always worse that way. And it's such a fallacy in our minds that we convince ourselves that it's better to kind of just like let it fade away or whatever. So that's that's something that I think has been a shift for me as I've gotten more confident saying no. Again, you know, as the company has grown, it's been interesting because in the very beginning, again, it was five of us. We were doing everything ourselves and we were both having to be strategists and leaders, but also individual contributors, because there were so few people. Now we have 35 people or so. And there's a lot a bigger team to sort of help and, and take on work. And so um, you do end up having to pass, you know, things to the appropriate team um, to root information to say, no, I don't have bandwidth for this, but let me connect you with XYZ. And I think you know, this is not all about just skill with email as a tool or as an art, but it's also about that confidence in evolving roles over time and feeling comfortable um, just being honest with yourself and other people about what you're capable of, what you can do right now, what you can't, what your bandwidth is, um, and being comfortable delegating as a team grows. Um, and so I think there's a lot of that psychological stuff that's also embedded in why we have challenges with emails um, that, you know, good leadership um, can help you deal with and face and be honest about and, and kind of grow into. So you've been hugely helpful to me in that regard, Sam, and, and you as well, Ben. Um, and so, but I think there's, there's definitely a part of it there as well, where closing the loop is not just about like laziness or, or like, you know, not, not, you know, having good email hygiene, but actually more a deeper rooted, like not wanting to disappoint people, which is a fallacy, because it's always worse to not let them know. Yeah, I, I wonder what is uh, you have a lot more um, time sensitive things that come up. than I do. Uh, what do you have like a, a heuristic that you use to so one of the things that I I try to make sure that I'm following is to make sure that I, I don't let recency determine priority. Um, do you have any heuristics that you use for when a, a press piece or a, a press opportunity or something that's time sensitive comes out um, that you, you use to try to prioritize those things? One of the great things now is that there's a team around me that can help me prioritize and triage. Um, and so because we have such a strong relationship with Jack Taylor PR um, and Tom and Mike are both working with me on press, I can now, you know, 
get input on an opportunity like, hey, how important do we think this is? What do we think the reach is? Um, is this worth doing? Um, and people, everyone on the team's aware of how, you know, bandwidth constrained we are. So they're not going to pile on unnecessary stuff. So one of the heuristics, I mean, so first of all, it's definitely getting input from the team on on sort of how valuable this opportunity is. And does it align with our written press strategy. Um, our press strategy has shifted between the beginning of this year and now where it was our last year, beginning of this year. And now where initially, you know, we really wanted to, um, you know, make sure that we were sharing our message in the top tier reputable, um, outlets that people, you know, turn to for trusted advice. And, um, and, you know, we were very fortunate to achieve that. And so now as, you know, we, and then secondarily, um, you know, we really want to build domain authority and, you know, make sure that we have strong backlinks coming to our site. And so there's different things that we're trying to achieve that shift over time. Um, we initially were really telling the story mostly about levels and, um, you know, and about our product. And we're shifting a bit more into sharing more educational stories about metabolic health and sort of niche topics within metabolic health that are relevant to individuals. And so because of that, um, we have to evolve in terms of what opportunities we're, we're taking on. Um, and so it's not just about yes to everything. It's actually really aligned with what is going to be aligned with our strategy and not just what's a shiny object. And so we have a big team that helps us stay accountable to our strategy. Um, that allows us to say no confidently when that's the right move. And if it's not, then we, sh you know, obviously look at the calendar and um, find time to do it. And again, these are often like 24 hour turnarounds um, and, you know, bump stuff that may be lower priority. And then I'd say the last thing is that we've created really great systems for making some of these press responses as efficient as possible. We have an amazing um, corpus of past responses in Notion um, you know, for all the different articles we've been a part of and interviews and all of that is documented, recorded and organized. And so um, that allows for JTPR to potentially take a first pass at doing some answers on my behalf that I can then review or for Mike um, or Tom to do a first pass. So we've set ourselves up to make these things not like reinventing the wheel every single time. Although sometimes, of course, we're going to get novel questions that we have to do original answers to. Um, but you know, trying to just basically create systems that let us um, be more efficient with these answers. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like delegation is the is the answer to that. Because um, a lot of those things are figuring out ways of uh, having either an automated system or having somebody take the first pass um, to free up more of your time. Um, that's something that I've been I've been practicing a lot, really. For probably the last eight years, I've actually I've had uh, a lot of people on the team don't know this, but uh, Lori, who works with us as a as a contractor, has actually been my my EA for almost maybe more than eight years. Um, and I actually hired Lori I, after reading Tim Ferriss's uh, Four Hour Work Week, where he talks about delegation as a superpower, and realizing that I didn't have the skills needed to be able to delegate. So I hired Lori, not really having anything for her to do, <laughs> just with the intent of figuring out how to get better at delegating. And uh, that was a really useful exercise in just flexing that muscle and learning how to learning how to phrase things and to set people up for success to be able to delegate effectively. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, Casey, you've, you've been delegating a lot more stuff. Um, I'm curious if there was a mental shift for you that got you more comfortable with that. Yeah, I think the mental shift, um, you know, a lot of it came down to conversations with you and Josh. Um, and then also a lot of the reading that I was doing and we were doing it a team doing as a team, you know, reading things like high growth handbook and, you know, that famous article about giving away your Legos at a startup and like, um, you know, several things like that, that helped me conceptualize, like how my role needs to change as the company grows. Um, again, with the people pleaser gene, and really just wanting to add value. Um, 
it can be hard sometimes to move from the doing it all yourself to like delegating psychologically, like, well, is this I'm, you know, this is different value, this is unknown value, is this okay, should I give this up? Or is it going to seem like I'm not doing what I'm good at and what I'm here to do. And that's, I think, a real like trap that you can get into psychologically um, that can stunt your ability to grow as a company is growing and as you're bringing on new people. And I think one of the things that's been most impactful for me is just being in such awe of people on the team that we've brought on and seeing how they work um, and how they can just take the baton and do it like so much better than I can. And I, you know, thinking about you, Ben, and, and Mike Haney and Tom and Miz and like people we've brought on who it's just like have taken these things that initially were kind of my own, like initially, you know, Josh and I were figuring out how to get on podcasts and we were totally flailing. And then Tom comes in and we get on 120 podcasts and like, you know, Mike comes in, I'm trying to publish like one article every two weeks. And then Mike Haney comes in and we're publishing three articles a week. And, you know, it's just, it, so that confidence building of like realizing like, oh man, like this is really exciting to work with people who are so good and feeling comfortable. Um, it just, it just necessitates that you kind of give up, you know, what you were initially doing and move into continue to move into the role of what only you can do. And you've repeated that mantra so many times, Sam, which is that like, Casey, you need to be doing what only you can be doing at the company. Um, and so, um, so I shouldn't be, you know, going in and trying to take you know, work that that someone else, the team who's even more capable than I am of doing that can do. So that's been really impactful for me really trying to focus on the things that I'm really passionate about doing, but also the things that only I can do as like, you know, the medical doctor at the company. Um, you know, and so that's, that's been one thing. Um, you know, I think the second thing, this is getting like, ultra personal here, but you know, it's a podcast. So I think we should, um, is that like, honestly, I have been, I've been in therapy for the past year and I started therapy after my mom died. You know, it's funny, like a lot of things I talk to about my therapist is like, you know, these types of concepts around being a people pleaser, not wanting to say no, um, having trouble delegating and actually just like breaking through some of those barriers. Um, and you know, just better understanding what it means to to be part of a team and to to grow into new challenges and new opportunities in the company and how that's, you know, okay. And, um, and so, you know, I think it's been a bit of like leadership training, both through interactions with you, Sam and coaching, but also through examining some of the reasons why it's hard to delegate and why it's hard to say no, and why it's hard to tell people you can't do something. Um, and realizing kind of like what, the positive sides of that are and why you do need to lean into that. I think, um, as you, you know, move into a leadership and a management, um, management role. And so, um, so those are some of the things that I think have been, you know, have been helpful, but a lot of it stems from just being like continually astounded by our team and how amazing people are and, um, you know, being comfortable passing off things to people and seeing how they run with it and make it just 10 times better. Yeah, the I can definitely relate to the uh, people pleaser aspect, and it used to it used to get me in a lot of uh, hot water, where I would I would say yes to everything, and I would just massively overcommit myself to projects. And the worst part of it was I, I would end up it would end up just being worse than saying no because I would just let everyone down, and uh, that was a hard thing to get over for me for sure. What was I'm so curious to hear what your journey was through kind of moving through that. Yeah, it, it's been it's been a long time. I think the I, I can't think of any specific moments where uh, it, it clicked for me. It was more out of necessity, where I I really value being reliable and being someone that people can trust and being high integrity. And it felt like committing to all of these things and dropping balls was causing me to uh, causing me to fail at it. You know, come to think of it, one of the things I sort of backed into using my calendar, uh, I was doing a lot of contract work for software development. And when you, when you are a contractor and you're billing hourly, you have to rigorously keep track of how you spend your time. And so I started using my calendar to budget my time and to keep track of my time as a, an accountability mechanism out of necessity. 
because otherwise I wouldn't know who to bill or how much. And I noticed that doing that really made it clear how much I could actually get done in a given week. And if I knew that I had to commit 20 hours to a project and I blocked off 20 hours on my calendar, and then somebody comes to me with a new project, I could say much more confidently, I can totally work on this, but not for another two and a half months. Um, or we're going to have to figure out some different arrangement with this other commitment that I have. So I think it was it was more of a necessity than anything uh, coming from uh, being a, a contract software developer. Another thing you just said there that reminded me of something that was helpful for me was conversations where you basically said like, when you're thinking about how to choose to spend your time, assume that your time is worth X amount of money per hour. Like, like, and you kind of, I think, created like an arbitrary value, but like that, that was what I should orient my mind around in terms of like, this is the value to the company. And so if you don't think what you're doing is worth that amount of money, then it's like, it should be going to someone else. Like we maybe need to hire a contractor to help with this or something like that. And somehow knowing like, okay, if I'm working on something like that definitely doesn't need to be done by me and could be done by someone else. And I could probably hire someone for a decent amount of money to do it. Like knowing that there was a monetary value associated with it really was helpful for me. Cause I was like, yeah, maybe we should, hire a, a, you know, a marketing freelancer or something to help with this particular project. Um, so just really, like you said, like knowing the value of your time, and then that being a helpful way to prioritize whether you're working on the right stuff. Um, it's, it's something I think about pretty frequently still. And, um, you know, we do have access to capital right now. And there are many really talented people who want to work with levels. And so there's that opportunity to get things potentially off your plate that are not things that are the best use of your time right now. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's just, I think, another kind of framework to, to potentially um, talk to, the, you know, the leadership at your company about and, and sort of think about, you know, how you should be thinking about your time and and when you should be outsourcing or delegating. Yeah, another another framework that's been helpful for me uh, with regards to delegating is uh, it's it's almost like using imposter syndrome to one's benefit, where you visualize somebody who is in the same position. So, like hypothetically, in my case, I would think who's an, another CEO of a startup in a similar stage, and then I think. Would it be reasonable for that person to do this thing? And if the answer is yes, then I need to just do it and not feel like I'm not worthy or that I'm an imposter. Um, I found that as a, a mental model has been really helpful for me. I mean, that's been a helpful one when you've told me about it, because I think there's a few times when you've said to me, I've said, Oh, my gosh, I can't send that email. It sounds like I'm shirking work, or I'm saying no, and I should just do it. It'll take me five minutes. And you say, like, if I, Sam, sent this email, would you think I was being lazy? And I'm like, No, of course not. You're so busy. And like, you have so much on your plate. And of course, someone else could. And he's like, Yeah, so how is it different? You know, if you're asking for help with something or saying that you don't have bandwidth for it right now. And I think there is something really powerful about visualizing another person doing something and whether that's like reasonable or expected or whatnot. So that that mental framing has helped me a lot kind of build the confidence to ask for help, delegate, etc. It's funny that I want to go deeper on the, I guess, the sense of being a people pleaser as it pertains to like wanting to do everything, because I think of it in a similar yet totally different way. So similar way, like, yeah, I want to like, sure, everybody wants to please people. Like nobody gets up in the morning. They're like, I hope I disappoint a whole bunch of people today. <laughs> like that would just be insane. But the only way to actually scale your time is through delegation. Like that's just a fact. That's the only way you can scale your time is by having a whole bunch of people that you trust to be able to do a bunch of great work. And that's awesome. But the way that you actually please people isn't by doing it yourself. It's by being involved in more things getting done. That's called progress, right? So if you are building a house and you're trying to do all the framing yourself and you're pouring the cement foundation and you're wiring it and doing the plumbing, it's like that takes you 
three years, let's say, independently. You might as well make the nails while you're at it and cut down the trees. Like, why not? That would be insane. But as soon as you delegate and you're like, we've got a plumber and we've got the electrician and we've got the like contractor running point on the project and we've got the framers, you're involved in that. And this is why people are happier is because they're like, oh, great, this thing's getting done. And then the other side of it is you're actually a people pleaser for all the people who are contributing to the thing getting done because intrinsically they feel trusted. They feel like they're doing a good job if they like assume they are doing a good job and you're letting them operate with autonomy. And all of a sudden the people pleaser has gone so wide, like the roots are so deep because all the people contributing to this one thing, extrapolate that to like 10 things going on at once. You've now made, instead of like two people happy through two projects, you've made a hundred people happy because there are 10 projects with 10 different people involved. And it's like, wow, that's what's called impact. So when thinking about scaling time and delegation and being a people pleaser that's like the only place my mind goes where i'm like how can we make more people happy and you're like by just doing more stuff that's like okay work and then people should be happy it's like it's like funny to hear that the the connection to wanting to do it oneself i think that's natural that's the human mind but overcoming that and as soon as you see the other side of the mountain you're like whoa like this is this is pretty like a pretty different way of executing. Totally. I think once you get past that mental block, it's it's a lot of freedom and you see the the opportunity on the other side, but I do think it it's like that that step of relinquishing a little control and then just seeing how how much fruit can be can be born um from that. And you do such a great such a great job with that Ben, um being involved in in so many different projects and um just being very diligent about documentation, about project updates, um, about closing the loop, um, you know, and really just kind of making sure everyone's unblocked. Um, so you can be involved in lots and lots of different things and empower lots of different projects. Um, well, seeming to be pretty cool, cool, cool as a cucumber. So it's, it's admirable. <laughs> well, I think we can bring this home here with a couple of carve out a couple of recommendations on how people can be better at comms, but there, there's definitely a misconception and we will highlight this again, which is you cannot over communicate. Like it is nearly impossible to over communicate. So if you think you are, do 10 times more the communication that you are, and you're still probably not communicating enough. Like there, there is a point where somebody has to tell you like, Casey, I don't need you to send me a picture of your coffee every morning. Even if we're best friends, it's like, <laughs> that might be a little much. You sent me 972 pictures today and messages like that's a little much. But in general, like when it comes to communications and the reason to bring this up, I'll go down a bit of a rant here because this is like my this is this is uncovering the curtain here. My one like life gripe, probably my biggest one and Pam would attest to it is bad communication, both personally and professionally is like my that is a jab like that hurts me so much that I can't even I wish I could express how much it really like it, it's painful so the reason I say it is that right now we've been talking about professional communication but it does relate to personal life too so if you say and this is Tom Kelly wrote this book gosh 15 20 years ago it's called the um, 10 faces of innovation I believe that's what it's called. Anyways, he's got this thing in it called the doorbell effect. And it's when you are communicating with someone and you know, like Sam and I have had a thread and Sam and I are talking, we'll tie it into personal life. Sam's like my best friend in neighbor. He's my neighbor. And we're talking about like going out for a bike ride on the weekend. And we've been like doing this all week. And then he just like drops off the face and you're like, that's and you wouldn't expect it from like Sam because he would communicate, but somebody drops off the face and you're like, I'm ringing the doorbell. I know the person's inside the house. And like, why aren't they getting like, why aren't they coming to the door? I can see them through the window. And that's probably the one of the most frustrating things in life, whether it's personal or professional is like not closing that loop or not saying, hey, this thing is done, like putting some 
some sense of resolve on the communication. And so I think that's probably one of the most important things when it just comes to comms, not email, just comms is like making sure that you've got a sense of resolve to whatever it is, no matter how big or small it seems. Um, here's a couple of like recommendations and feel free to add to any of these is like, how can people be better at comms? Well, when it comes to messaging, have better tooling. So superhuman is a great one for email. Um, be honest about prioritization and time management. Like if you're spending your time communicating about something and choosing to say yes or no, like be honest about the what you're working on and your prioritization of those tasks. Um, be fast. And that doesn't mean to be reactive to recency, but be fast in the sense of like 24 to 48 hours professionally is probably reasonable for like a medium priority message. Be transparent. So like always be honest about it and be specific and direct, not necessarily thorough, but be specific. Like question, Casey, um, will you have this press thing done by tomorrow? Don't bury the lead and then close the loop. Like once it's done, great. Here's the takeaway. So anyways, that's my rant on that. But if, if you guys have anything to add to how to be better at comms or email, fire away. I love those takeaways, Ben. I would say the the only ones I would add are don't be afraid to ask for help. I think we're in a challenging environment in our lives right now where there is such an abundance of communication streams. We all are on like five or more channels of ways that people can communicate with us and they're all different um, and it's hard. And so find people who are better than you at it, i.e. Sam Corcos and Ben Grinnell and <laughs> get help. Um, I think that that's, and, and be honest about your struggles. I think some of the biggest breakthroughs for me were when I just like, was like, you know what, it's embarrassing, Sam, but this is my inbox. Like here it is, you know, and that, and then, you know, you can, you can get, support just like with anything else. And so, um, yeah, I would say like, just don't be afraid to ask for help and to maybe also under like examine some of the underlying reasons why you're struggling with certain aspects of communication, like saying no, or delegating those maybe more, you know, parts of your personality that you need to examine and work through and get to the root cause of so that you can, uh, you know, communicate as effectively as possible and scale yourself and your time as effectively as possible. So getting the root cause, asking for help are two additions I would add to Ben's. Yeah, I think I would add make comms your number one priority if you're in leadership. Keep it as simple as that. If you're an engineer, you might get one email per day, especially at our company. And so it's not really a big deal. But if you're in leadership, it needs to be your number one priority. If you're overwhelmed and things are overtaking your communication time or your email processing time, you need to reduce your workload to make that the priority. Hey, Sam didn't get like a phone call. He was no. supposed to get a phone call. What's with that? Oh, it'll be sometime today. They're on West Coast time, so it could be any time in the next three hours. 